1 Peter 4. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans chose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or as a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is difficult for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The scriptures we just heard so eloquently narrated, read in the New King James Version, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does that mean? The context begins in the previous chapter about Christ suffering once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but alive by the Spirit. So here in our text today, it says, Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Does that mean we pay for our sins? Does that mean we suffer so that we can stop sinning? No, but there is a certain aspect to suffering to stopping sin because sin is fun now sin creates suffering but in denying ourselves fleshly pleasures there's a form of suffering in that and in serving the lord there's a purification that happens in our lives when we suffer 
Suffering has a way of purifying our desires. Fasting is a form of suffering that purifies your desires. Sooner or later, you're not going to think about anything else except why you're fasting and food. All those other things in life pale in comparison to those two priorities. And so in fasting, we can draw nearer to the Lord. So it says here, he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his lifetime in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Suffering does purify us, especially if you are suffering because of persecution. You draw nearer to the Lord. He understands. He's near to the brokenhearted. May your disappointment drive you to him and not to bitterness and the sense of injustice. Verse 3, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, the unbelievers. When we walked in lewdness, that's provocative dress, that's seductive behavior. Lust, that's desires of every kind, strong fleshly desires of every kind. Drunkenness, revelries, that's conflict, fighting, and strife. Drinking parties, don't have to tell you what that is, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they, that is the unbelievers, think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. In other words, you don't live in the debauchery or the wasteful living that they do, and they're going to speak evil of you. Oh, you're holier than thou. Oh, you're goody two-shoes. Oh, you think you're better than us. But just you misbehave, and they'll gather the dirt on you and use it to blackmail you to get you to do more evil. So don't be swayed by that trash. They will, verse 5, give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they may be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, what in the world does that mean? Some people will take that verse and put it with the last few verses of the previous chapter and come up with a weird doctrine. But it's very simple. Verse 5 says, They will, that is, the unbelievers that mock you, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We serve God, who's the righteous judge, who's going to judge the living and the dead. At the great second coming of Christ, when the trumpet sounds, we'll be caught up together to meet him in the air. But the dead in Christ will rise first. So he relates to both of us. So keeping that in mind, these unbelievers that mock us will give an account to the one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So when you die, you don't escape the great judge. For this reason, the gospel was preached also, was preached also. So they had been preached to before, also to those who are dead or those who are now dead. So if you preach the gospel to someone who is now dead, you preach the gospel to them when, when they are alive. So the saints who have been killed for their faith are now dead. They heard the gospel. They believed. The judge is going to judge them and bring them right into his righteous kingdom. 
For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are dead and to us who are alive as well, right? That they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. So if you die in faith, you're going to arise from the dead in faith. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Verse 7, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have fervent love one for another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If you speak, speak realizing that you're representing God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy." The Greek word there for exceeding joy includes a word that is jumping up and down kind of joy, the kind of joy you have when your grandson scores a touchdown or your daughter makes the honor roll. It's joy you have when you find out you're going to have a baby. Ah, yes! Excitement. So we can, when we're going through fiery trials, why are they called fiery trials? Because they burn up sinful things out of us. There's something about being lean and mean in the Lord. All the chaff gets burned up when we go through the heat of a struggle. Our desires are refined when surviving and thriving in the kingdom of God becomes our greatest priority. People experience this when they go through a storm. When I was a kid, a tornado destroyed the house we lived in. My dad's first pastorate was in South Sur, Illinois. My sister was eight days old. My mom and dad lost everything, just the two of them and a travel trailer because their home was destroyed, no insurance, had to start over again. There was a purification that went on in their lives that no doubt had an impact on them, that had an impact on their future. Maybe they would still be at that little church and had never become missionaries had purification not happened through that trial. Does that mean trials purify us? No. But if we draw nearer to the Lord than we ever would have before were it not for the trial, that's what purifies us. So we are to rejoice to the extent that we partake of Christ's sufferings. Lord, I feel betrayed, and I realize you are betrayed for us. Thank you so much. Lord, I feel abused, and I realize you were abused for us. Thank you so much. There's an intimacy that can come between you and the Lord because you get a taste of what it is like to have been him. So we can rejoice as we understand the value of his resurrection with exceeding joy. Verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Don't go to meddling. Keep your nose out of other people's business. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. In other words, if you suffer for doing evil, there's a level of shame that comes with that. But if you know that you're right and your conscience is clear and you're not walking in self-righteousness, you have nothing to be ashamed of. Just humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time, the Scriptures promise. For the time has come, verse 17, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? They're long gone. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in your name that you would speak to us from your word. Speak to us in such a way that we realize our lives are not our own, that we belong to you, and that you are Lord in every situation. And Lord, I pray for those people who are suffering, suffering because of the pandemic and our government's reactions to it, suffering because of the hostility in the culture. I pray, Lord, for your comforting presence to be made real to every person listening to this message and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. June 5th, 2009, a Harvard professor, Daniel Gilbert, had an article in a magazine called The Week. And in that article, he stated that the well-being index, I didn't know there was a, such a thing, the well-being index in 2009, almost 11 years ago, showed that Americans were smiling less and worrying more than they were the year before. Happiness was down and sadness was up. Americans were getting less sleep and smoking more cigarettes, and depression was on the rise. If that was true then, what do you think it is now? Stay with me, I'm going somewhere. The real problem, he said, is not financial, it's something else. People are unhappy because of uncertainty. They don't know what's going to happen. Will I be employed next week? Will I get a job next month? What's ahead in the future for me? Professor Gilbert pointed to a Dutch experiment where, <laughs> I hate these experiments, but this is what they do with people. They gathered a group of students, no doubt, but subjects, and told them that they were going to be intensely shocked 20 times within a certain time period. They hooked them up to electrodes and did that while measuring their heart rate, their blood pressure, and their perspiration. They took a second group and told them they would receive 17 minor shocks and three strong shocks, but they wouldn't know which of the 17-plus shocks would be one or more of the three strong shocks. 
The subjects in the second group sweated more and experienced faster heart rates because uncertainty causes discomfort. Another study of colostomy patients found that those patients who were told their colostomy would be permanent six months after their procedure were found to be happier than those subjects who were told they might have a chance of reversing their colostomy. In other words, this inconvenient surgery that has happened may be able to be reversed. You think they'd be happy about it, but because it's uncertain whether or not that will happen, they may have to live like that the rest of their life, they went through a more intense season of unhappiness than the previous group who were told that their colostomy was permanent. As saddening as that is, they adjusted to the new reality and were found to be happier than the people who were just kind of hung over the realm of possibility. Mr. Gilbert summarizes, an uncertain future leaves us stranded in an unhappy present with nothing to do but wait. He said, our national gloom is real enough, but it isn't a matter of insufficient funds. It's a matter of insufficient certainty. I'd like to speak to you today on the subject, how to live with certainty in uncertain times. Based on our text we read today and a few verses in the following chapter, there are 13 things to be certain about. That if you're certain about these, probably if you're just certain about a, f- a few of them, it will take away the anxiety that uncertainty can create in our lives. How to live with certainty in uncertain times. We can be certain that Christ suffered to free us from sin. Our text said, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So we can be certain that Christ died for our sins. History is recorded that there's a man named Jesus who was called the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who died, who proclaimed his resurrection in advance of his resurrection. And it's a Christian faith that has declared for centuries he died to pay for the sins of the world. So your sin problem has been atoned for. Your rebellion problem has been redeemed. Believe it, and it will have an impact on your thinking. We can be certain that the ways of sin must be abandoned. We need not yield to the flesh and say, you know, Christ died for my sins, and I'm going to live any old way. No, the ways of sin need to be abandoned. So if you find yourself trapped in sin, continue pursuing the Lord. He has ways to set us free. Sometimes in our approach to him about our sin issues, we try to repent, we try to ask for forgiveness, we try to ask for freedom, but we're not really dealing with the real issue. There's a verse in John's first letter that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's able to do that. We know he's able to forgive us, but 
if you find yourself continuing to sin, there's a measure of unrighteousness in our lives that I believe the Lord wants to cleanse from us. This isn't salvation by works. This is salvation by the work of Jesus Christ that he accomplished on the cross to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what is that issue? Maybe you're repenting for being angry all the time when the issue of your anger is fear or selfishness or unresolved guilt, something else you're trying to cover up. Dig deep with the Lord. Draw near to him. There's nothing else we need like we need him. Verse 3 goes on to say, For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So don't let anybody lie to you and tell you that sin isn't a problem, and you can just go ahead and live however you have, because that is, salvation is fire insurance. They're lying to you. If you suffer as an evildoer and you're God's child, he's going to discipline you. You burn, you learn. He will purify his children. And so he's calling you today to deal with your stuff and not to defend it. Well, it's just the way I am, or you don't understand. He understands. And the fact that we can have a closer walk with the Lord than we have is proof enough that there is something missing in your life that could remedy a whole lot of problems. Maybe you're trying to fill a void in your life with things you're addicted to that would be remedied simply by filling your life with the things of God. Well, I know I'm not close to God. Well, brother, sister, we are as close to God as we want to be. I know that's hard, but it's the truth. So if you know you need to be close to the Lord, ask him to draw you. Lord, I pray right now you draw us into a closer relationship with you than we've ever had before. Like the old spiritual says, just a closer walk with thee. The man that used to sing that didn't really mean it. We can be certain that unbelievers will not understand. As you attempt to live a life free of the bondages of sin, people will not understand. They'll mock you. They'll persecute you. Be certain that that's going to happen. You won't go into shock when you start getting called names. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation or wastefulness. Speaking evil of you, they may even name you after a certain kind of waste product. doesn't matter. It's to be expected. It's what they do. They really don't want you to fail. They want you to succeed. And they don't want to be convicted, though. Be certain that we are all accountable to God, including them, starting with us. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We are all accountable to our maker, and we will stand before him and receive his judgment. Thank God that our judgment has been paid for through the blood of Christ. Hallelujah. We need to be certain that everything we say is certain. 
In other words, when we speak, we need to be careful what we say. Verse 11 says, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God, as the utterances of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So we are his representative. And so what we say needs to reflect the one we're representing. If we're a negative, if we're a backbiter, or if we're a busybody, can we do that as the oracles of God? This principle in itself will purify us. In the early days of our marriage, when Yvette and I would struggle economically as we were learning to manage our own affairs, many times we would be tempted to be negative and to complain and to whine and maybe to point fingers. And I don't know where we learned it, but we began to respond to one another's negativity with this little phrase. I believe that you're a prophet and everything you say shall come to pass. Now, Keep in mind, our theology doesn't reflect that, but the principle is there. If everything you say comes to pass, I bet you would clean up your speech. And I do dare say, this isn't my theology. Everything we say does have an impact on what happens in our life. And if we're negative and unbelieving and cursing and down in the mouth about everything, that in itself is going to kill creativity. It's going to stifle our ability to hear God and be inspired. So I believe that you're a prophet and everything you say will come to pass. So when we speak here, we're to speak as the oracles of God, as the auction of God. And as we minister, we're to do with what God gives, what we're able to minister. Romans chapter 12 says, to everyone has been given the measure of faith. And we're to use that faith in conjunction with our ministry. That's another sermon. We're to be certain that fiery trials are going to come. Don't know when and don't know when not. But fiery trials come and go. It's part of living on the earth. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer. Peter said, rejoice, I have overcome. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Oh my goodness, what's going on? No, this is normal, this is life. Be certain that hard times are gonna come so that when they do, you don't go into shock. Doesn't mean you live as though the sky's about to fall any moment. No, be certain it is going to fall sometimes, but we're not going to be destroyed. We may be knocked down, but we're not knocked out. We can be certain that future joys are going to come. But rejoice to the extent, verse 13 says, that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We can't do this unless we're certain. And we need to be certain that this thing isn't going to last forever. Oh, we're going to have a new normal. Don't dread that. Things can be better. But we've had new normals ever since the history of man 
When Adam and his wife fell, there was a new normal. When the flood came, there was a new normal. When the Tower of Babel happened, there was a new normal. We're still here. When Jesus came and conquered death, there was a new normal. When the church was born at Pentecost, there's a new normal. There's a new normal for you. Today can be your day of redemption. Today can be the day that your mind is renewed and the cloud of negativity is gone. Is this a psychobabble sermon? No, it's not. It's the word of God. Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Lord, I thank you that I am getting a taste of what it was like to do what you did for us in your trip to the cross and your, your hours on the cross. Thank you for redeeming us. And thank you, Lord, that when your glory is revealed, we are going to be so happy. You know, nothing enlarges our capacity for joy like sorrow. There's no victory sweeter than the victory after a hard-fought battle. Do you enjoy watching a game where one team just stomps the other one and the game is over 11 to 1? Boring, but man, when you're neck to neck, it's 10, 10, 11, 11, 12, 12, 12, and then in overtime, at the last second, he shoots the thing just before the bell sounds. Three points, and they come from behind by two points and win by one point. That is excitement. That is joy. The joy of victory is great. And so it is in our struggles. When victory comes, we're going to enjoy it so much more. This letter by Peter begins in the first chapter with these words, verse 6, And all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We used to sing a song in the churches I grew up in, it is joy unspeakable and full of glory, full of glory, full of glory. It will be joy unspeakable and full of glory, and the half has never yet been told. We're talking about things to be certain about. We need to be certain that when we suffer, it's for being Christ-like and not for being an evildoer. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, verse 14, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. Oh, I've never killed anyone. Yes, but do you have hatred in your heart? If you do, Jesus said that's murder in your heart. A thief. Oh, I've never stolen anything. Yes, but have you coveted something that doesn't belong to you in your heart? That's stealing in your heart. An evildoer? Have you been manipulative or not quite told the whole truth? Or is a busybody in other people's matters? You know, some things are just none of our business. We don't have to give our opinion 
all the time, especially when it's not asked for. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. So we need to be certain that when we suffer, it's for being Christ-like and not for being an evildoer. You can be certain that God's judgment begins at God's house. It starts with us. Oh, I wish he'd judge this wicked world. Watch out now. He will, but he's going to start, and I believe he is starting, with us. Our text says in verse 17, for the time has come that judgment must, must, it has to begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? So it begins with us, and that can bring comfort to us because Hebrews says, if we're his, he'll chasten us. He'll judge us. In fact, we're not his children if he doesn't judge us, if he doesn't chasten us, if he doesn't discipline us. We can be certain that we may suffer. We will suffer. There are times of suffering that are according to God's will. What? My God doesn't want me to suffer. My God wants to coddle me like I'm a spoiled baby my whole life. That's not what the Word says. Therefore, verse 19, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. What is God telling you to do? What has God called you to do that you don't want to do? Why do we sometimes not want to do what God tells us to do? Because sometimes he calls us to leave aside our comforts, leave aside our securities, like Abraham, to go to a land where you've never been before like missionaries, to go to a foreign soil, like a faithful witness to go to speak to the toughest man on the job who's an atheist. We don't want to suffer, but if we do, it's for doing God's will. What kind of athletes would sports have if every time somebody got an injury, they would just go into shock? What if in a pro football game, Somebody stomped off the field because somebody knocked me down. I don't want to suffer. No, no pain, no gain. It's part of the battle. It's part of the sport. It's part of the game. And part of doing God's will is letting God use you and you investing your blood, sweat, and tears in his efforts just as he did for us. We can be certain that the humble road is always the way to go always a way to go. It's never, well, I've been humble long enough. I'm going to do things my way. The next chapter, verse 5, says, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on him, for he cares for you. So, basically what this is meaning, when we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, it's a fearful thing. It's a scary thing. 
Because what if it doesn't pay off? What if people take advantage of me in my exposed, vulnerable state? Yet God is calling you to humble yourself and do his will. So take those cares, those worries, those anxieties that are trying to prevent you from obeying the Lord and humbling yourself under his mighty hand and cast them on him. He cares for you. Give it to him and obey him. Maybe the humility is just simply waiting on him. Maybe the humility is just simply standing, remaining faithful to the spouse who's not become a believer. Being faithful on the job where you haven't gotten a raise even though you're worthy of one and you do more than what you've been paid to do, yet God called you to work there. He got you the job. Don't stomp off. Cast your cares on him in that situation. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. You may say, I'm tired of waiting on God, like Mr. T in that movie. Remember one of those Christian movies? He comes out with a machine gun ready to mow people down. I'm tired of waiting on God. You may feel like that sometimes. But you've made it this far. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. feel like I'm Joe Osteen right now. (laughs) Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you in due time. We can be certain that the devil can be resisted successfully. He goes on to say in chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. So Satan, the Satan is really the way to call him, the divider, the adversary, the devil, is attacking you. No, you're not the only one. He's just, it's not even him personally. He he has to go to and fro on the earth. So it's probably one of his minions harassing you. Maybe it's your own mind harassing you. And these things will devour us if we let them, but we are to resist them and be steadfast in our faith, knowing that we're not alone in our suffering and knowing they'll devour us if we let them. How does a lion eat? He, does he attack a herd head-on, a buffalo head-on? No, he looks for the straggler. He looks for the wounded. He looks for the immature. He looks for the ailing one and gets it off by itself and then attacks. When you're fearful, don't be vulnerable. When you're angry, don't be vulnerable. When you're isolated, don't be vulnerable. Get yourself out of isolation. Pick up the phone and call somebody and begin to fellowship. That's the one danger of this social distancing season is the body of Christ has to engage technology to stay connected lest they see themselves as a victim of the government. Well, may God help us never to believe that. We're no one's victim. We're humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. So don't let the enemy attack you like a lion attacks. When you realize you're vulnerable, you're weak, you're angry, you're hurt, get some help from somebody that will tell you the truth and not just someone that will coddle you and reinforce some forms of iniquity. We can be certain our troubles will be worth it all. In verse 10 of 1 Peter 5, he says, but may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, 
after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So let it be done. So, so it is. It is what it is. This is it. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. So the promise is, after we've suffered a while, we don't know how long that while is, that God will perfect us, establish us, strengthen us, and settle us. How does this happen? This happens as we draw near to him, as we receive comfort from the scriptures, as we are comforted by one another. This is Esther Kerr Rusthoy, sister to the musical evangelist named Phil Kerr. She also was a musical evangelist, but she suffered physically. In fact, she died at the young age of 53. She was on staff at the famous Angelus Temple, a temple that was renowned worldwide for its use of technology. Amy Simple McPherson had some scandals in her life, so no doubt Esther was disturbed by some things at the very church where she worshiped. And she wrote this song that is sung around the world. It's called It Will Be Worth It All, or called When We See Christ. The verses are oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur, and despair. But Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. Sometimes the sky looks dark with not a ray of light. We're tossed and driven on, no human help in sight. But there is one in heaven who knows our deepest care. Let Jesus solve your problem. Just go to him in prayer. Life's day will soon be o'er. It was for her. All storms forever past will cross the great divide to glory safe at last. We'll share the joys of heaven, a harp, a home, a crown. The tempter will be banished when we'll lay our burden down. The chorus is, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will erase, so bravely run the race till we see Christ. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. My final point today 
and how to live with certainty is in uncertain times is be the kind of worshiper God is looking for. Jesus told a woman at the well whose life was a mess, he told her the hour is here, the hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for he is seeking such to worship him. We want to worship him in truth. We want our songs and our worship and our service to be biblical, to be genuine. We don't want to be fake. We don't want it to be a performance. We want to worship him in truth. We want to worship him in spirit. We want to encounter him scripturally and spiritually, not just cerebrally, but the whole person involved. As we worship him during this next song, it's about making our hearts an open space. It's about being filled with the Spirit. Worship with us as Generations Church Praise Team leads us in his worship. Draw near to him, and I'm telling you right now, as you worship him and as his Spirit fills you, you'll develop a certainty that maybe you didn't have before this service began. While we're living in these uncertain times, it's important that we become certain people, not egomaniacs, not dogmatic, prideful know-it-alls, but people are certain in the one who does have it all under control. We don't have it in control, but he does, and the story's not over. Let's worship the Lord together.
open space for you to come and have your way. Lead us and guide us, Lord. May your word be alive in us. Lord, may we speak as the oracles of God. May our lives be living letters, living epistles that unbelievers may read. In Jesus' name, amen. My dad used to say people will read our lives and open their Bibles or read our lives and close their Bibles. May the Lord use us like salt to make people thirsty for the living water that he has to give. Thank you so much for worshiping with us today. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, call on him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. Set yourself on a quest to get to know God, and he will be found by those that seek him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, the peace that comes when you're certain of the things that are most important in life, when you're standing steadfast in faith. May you have that peace always. In Jesus' name, amen. Go get him, tigers.